Two and a Half Admins, episode 102. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Gary. And here we are again. And thank you for joining us, Gary, while Alan is out. No worries. People may know you from the Linux After Dark podcast. Welcome the lad from lad, everybody. Thanks for having me. I saw an article recently on Pharonix about Redblade, one of the speculative execution bugs, and how 32-bit x86 Linux is probably not going to get patched, which to me signals the kind of final nail in 32-bit Linux's coffin. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not getting patched in MS-DOS either. (laughs) (laughs) I I think folks that are still, you know, hanging on to 32-bit Linux just by bloody fingernails, they they need to let go. Uh, It's been a while since mainstream processors were being manufactured 32-bit. I know there are still some folks who are just grimly determined to run 32-bit kernels, even on 64-bit processors, with the idea that, you know, oh, well, I have less memory overhead that way. Which is true if you're determined to try to run, you know, really, really itty-bitty instances, you know, like 256 megs of RAM or whatever. But, I mean, the the times change. You got to move on. You got to keep up. You can't just keep doing the same thing you always did and expect it will always be fine. And realistically, the only real 32-bit hardware that is being used now is things like netbooks, client devices, where speculative execution isn't as big of a problem as it is with servers. I tend to agree with Powan from Intel, who Pharonix got to give a quote here, where he said, Intel's not aware of production environments that use 32-bit mode on Skylake Gen and newer CPUs, so this shouldn't be a concern. And like, by the time Skylake rolled around, we had mainstream 64-bit distros for a really, really long time. And Skylake was quite a while back. But even then, I wasn't running any 32-bit stuff. So if you were running 32-bit OS on physical hardware as recently as Skylake, I think it's on you. And there's really very few reasons I see that you wouldn't just move to a 64-bit kernel at this point. Yeah, agreed. Um You couldn't have just said, well, we're done with 32-bit that long ago. But again, to put it in perspective, I want to say my first production 64-bit x86 installations were in like 2004. (laughs) I mean, Skylake was launched in 2015. So at this point, you've had seven years to move off of a 32-bit OS. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine there are that many sysadmins around who would have done a 32-bit Linux install in the last seven years. Certainly not for any mainstream workload. Yeah, I was going to say, as somebody who goes to a lot of Linux conventions, unfortunately, I can tell you for a fact, yes, those sysadmins are out there and they can be kind of noisy, but, well, I might piss off a few listeners here, but they're making other really terrible mistakes as well. (laughs) Those sysadmins that are still clinging to 32-bit. Well, we talked about on Late Night Linux recently, Ian Jackson had a Debian server that had been around for nearly 30 years, and he only just got around to doing a a cross-grade, as it were, from 32-bit to 64-bit. And that was uh, quite a challenge for him to do. Yeah, but at that point, I would be inclined to say, you know, this server has had a good run. It's been around Mm -hmm. for 30 years. Yeah. There's probably all sorts of historical config and stuff on that box that hasn't been cleaned up. Just nuke it. Far be it from you know this podcast to talk about cattle versus pets and stuff, but by thirty years old, that thing should have been gone long, long ago. Yeah, we're we're basically right back to what I said before, which is you know if this is a problem for you, you've 
probably committed some other pretty egregious errors. And honestly, you know, if you have a lot of problems migrating a production server from 32-bit to 64-bit in 2022 because of, you know, all of this unaddressed technical debt that you haven't looked at in decades, well, that's one of those enormous freaking mistakes. If you let decades of technical debt accrue to the point where it's just overwhelming to even think of looking at it, that's not a mistake you made today. It's not a mistake you made last year. Like, that's a mistake that you've been living with for quite a while. And hopefully you learn that lesson as you overcome that technical debt now as you're forced to. And don't put yourself in that position again. If you're still running a 32-bit OS, you should have planned a migration away from it long, long ago. Well, again, in this case, it's not just about that. If you have trouble moving from a 32-bit OS to a 64-bit OS with a production workload, as trivial as that tends to be, I'm going to have to come down on the side that, again, there's there's a lot of technical debt you did not address, and there's probably a lot of things about that workload that you aren't really familiar with anymore, and you're like just dreading looking at, and that is not a way to run your prod. If you're not ready to migrate prod to, you know, whatever the next new thing is, within a few years of that being the next new thing, you have made an error. And the longer you fail to address that error, the worse it's going to get. You can't just say, I built this server and now the problem is solved and I never have to think about that again. That's not the way it works. If you built it, you got to maintain it. And if you don't bother, (laughs) it's going to get harder. Yeah. And I've worked in places where we've had a real long tail of technical debt. Like I worked in a place where we were running Elasticsearch 1.5 on Windows. And for whatever reason, we had applications that were tied into some specific feature of Elasticsearch 1.5 that we could not get away from. And there comes a point where you have to address that because you can't just keep running this long tail of maintaining this ancient version of Elasticsearch on this ancient version of Windows forever. Because it will come and bite you in the ass. And usually when it comes and bites you in the ass, it's too late. Yeah. When I've had positions or gigs or what have you where part of the job was wrangling a herd of devs, one of my big things is always like, you know, okay, look, you want to use libraries in this application that you're building. You need to use libraries that are in the most current LTS of your production platform. And you don't go off and grab like bleeding edge betas or alphas directly from the vendor's webpage that you download and, you know, cowboy off of. And you don't use ancient things that were in, you know, the LTS that's going to be dead next year. You use what's current and you know, all right, so if we're building on, let's say, Ubuntu 2204 now, by 2027, I need to be ready to adapt to, you know, whatever the newer libraries are in, you know, that LTS, because that's going to be my last chance to get off of this thing before everything is stale and obsolete. And you shouldn't really be waiting until 2027 either, or even 2026. You should be evaluating the next LTS that drops two years from then. You don't have to decide to go with that one. It's okay if you decide, eh, there's nothing here that makes it worth our while to, you know, uproot everything and move over to that But you should at least have kicked the tires enough to have some idea of the problems you're going to face when it is time to upgrade. And some of these library versions do change. And it's time to start looking at some of those particular problems now so that it's not just jumping off the deep end from nothing when you're forced to change with only a couple of months left to go. It's not a position you want to put yourself in. No, what you want to do is just use something like NPM and stay totally up to date all the time. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> NPM aside, I think the mistake I see the most is that a developer pulls in some dependency to a project and they don't keep a track of the release notes of that dependency. Quite often, they don't even document that that dependency is even there. So when it comes to you know, five, seven years' time, when we're looking to move to the next Ubuntu LTS or the next version of RHEL or whatever it might be, you suddenly discover, oh, someone's using this dependency and it's had this feature that we're depending on that was deprecated three releases ago, but no one knew we were using it. So I think this is where having a good software lifecycle policy, having good documentation, and actually keeping a track of the release notes and the feature deprecations and additions of the stuff you're using really comes in. And so many shops just do not do that properly. I think the easiest way to do that, like if you're in an environment where it's difficult for whatever reason to keep track of that in like a formal way and, you know, directly with each individual library as its own project, like I said, two years goes by, it's a new LTS, evaluate that, find out if your project builds, find out what problems you have and start thinking about how to address them. Because whatever those issues are, they're probably not going to go away with the one after that when you no longer have a choice. I guess you still have a choice at that point, but your choice, you know, the second LTS down the pike becomes not just do I want to do this LTS the next one? It becomes a, a case of, you know, do I want to run supported code that gets security patches or not? And the answer to that should never be no. <laughs> if the answer to that is no, you've done something horribly, horribly wrong. Well, or pay the likes of Canonical for extended support. Again, you've done something pretty badly wrong if you're doing that. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Even if you're an enormous enterprise and it's not that much money out of the budget, the fact that you're throwing money at Canonical to continue patching this old crap just tells me you haven't been keeping up with your technical debt. And it's going to continue getting more and more expensive. It's going to get less and less likely that you'll be able to address it with, you know, weird out-of-band solutions like just throwing money at Microsoft or Canonical or whoever the vendor is to, you know, to keep supporting something that's been deprecated. It's not that hard to keep up to date if you actually make that a priority. If you say, look, part of my job, part of, you know, what it is I do, part of being a developer is doing things right. And doing things right means keeping up to date with what's going on. It's not that bad. When it's a problem is when you say, well, all I need to do as a developer is I just need to pound at this thing, whether I really understand it or not, until if I hold my mouth just right, everything works, and then forget about it and move on to the next thing. If that's what you're doing, if that's what your dev cycle looks like, and I mean, I've been there, I've developed code like that, you know, it, most people learn that lesson when they learn it the hard way. There aren't that many people that start out from just day one as like a larval form dev or sysadmin and do everything right you know, from the get-go. You take shortcuts, you get burned. Hopefully you learn from it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. 
Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Confluence had quite an embarrassing incident with a hard-coded password recently. Who does that <laughs> in 2022? Let me just hard-code a password directly into my app that millions of people will use. Like, that was an incredibly stupid mistake to make in, I don't know, 2010? <laughs> it's a stupid thing to do, but somehow doesn't surprise me from Atlassian, having administered some of their products before. It is a royal pain in the ass to do anything with those products from an admin point of view. So it doesn't surprise me that they're taking shortcuts like this, to be honest. I think the worst of it for me, beyond just the simple fact of hard coding a password into an app, is the type of app it is. When you go to the the Confluence website... The page says, move work forward from anywhere. Confluence Mobile gives you instant access to your team, projects, and customers. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing I want to have a hard-coded backdoor in every single copy of that application. Are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, Confluence is really heavily used by like a lot of DevOps teams and IT shops for documentation and stuff. So you can only imagine what the kind of data that people are putting in there. Like having my wiki backdoored with a hard-coded password is its really not something that I'd want. Well, Gary, the good news is we don't have to guess what kind of data people had in that app. <laughs> we can just use the hard-coded password and find out. Yeah, this is true. Disabled system user is uh, probably not a particularly hard username to guess, even if you didn't know this, is it? It does concern me slightly that they've disclosed this in Confluence, which is obviously their wiki software, but they do make a lot of other software that's going to have some really, really sensitive stuff in. Like they've got Bamboo, which is their CI/CD product, so people are going to have all sorts of secrets coded into that. They've got Bitbucket, which obviously you know people are running with source code in and all sorts of proprietary information that if that stuff gets leaked out, is a serious, serious problem for your business. So it's really concerning to me that a company that you're trusting with that level of data has made a snafu like this. I think this is the part where I fall back on my default position as the filthy open source hippie GPL lover and say, well, you know, you use a proprietary code base. You don't know what they did in there. To be fair to Atlassian, I mean, it's a large company. I'm sure there are a lot of teams with a fair amount of separation, and we don't know that other teams have made that same kind of romper room mistake. The problem is that we don't know that they didn't either. And if we were talking about proper open source applications, we could audit the source and find out. I do wonder if part of this is, from what I've seen in the industry, Atlassian are making a big push for people to move to their hosted versions of these apps. And I wonder if part of this is just that the on-prem self-hosted versions of it just don't have the same eyes on them in terms of QA, because you would like to think that this would have gotten caught somewhere in the QA process or in a code review or something like that. So maybe there just aren't the eyes on these versions that people are running on their own boxes at this point, because there is this big push to kill them off and get people to move to the hosted version. Well, would you, in fact, have been better off if you were on the hosted version for this particular flaw? This particular flaw appears to have been an account that was created to enable people to move to the hosted version. So potentially, <laughs> yes. But but again, like you said, this is this is not 
open source so we just we just don't know we don't have right. the eyes on the source code for this version we definitely don't have the acne access to the source code for the hosted version so who knows that definitely adds a certain stank to it the idea that yeah and the whole reason that was there is to try to push you into you know to i'm sorry to make it easier for you to migrate to the hosted version in the first place yeah it's not a good look Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your free consulting questions or your feedback or anything, really, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Ryan has done. He says... I have a couple of ZFS snapshot-related questions. I have a production system taking snapshots every hour kept for a week, and a separate backup server that multiple systems send snapshots to. Should longer-term snapshots like weekly kept for a month and monthly kept for a year be performed on the backup server to conserve space on the production systems, or is it better to keep a full history on the production system? The backup server has a lot more storage and there are very frequent changes on most of the production systems, some running VMs, some as file shares, etc. Off-site backups would just need to be sent from the on-site backup server, which would contain all of the snapshots in either case. So that's the first question. Okay, we can answer that one pretty quickly. Uh, you don't have the option of performing the snapshots on the backup server, because if you try to take a snapshot locally on the backup server, it will get wiped out the next time you replicate in from the source. Now, what you absolutely can do if you want to keep a greater archive depth on the backup server than the production server is... You don't destroy the snapshots as quickly on backup as you do on production. So the production still needs to take the same monthlies and weeklies and hourlies, but they only need to stay on the source for long enough to get replicated off. As long as you know, you've still got a recent common snapshot between the two so you don't break your replication chain, that's the way to solve that. So for example, on your production, you might say, I'm taking weeklies and I'm keeping them for a month. But on the backup side, when those weeklies replicate in, you don't destroy them on the backup until it's been, you know, three months or six months or however long you want to keep those things around. That's the way you manage that. I think the only thing I would add to that is it depends on what your recovery time objective is. If you need to recover from one of those snapshots very quickly, you might want to keep it on the production system. But even then, if your recovery time objective is that short, then <laughs> yeah, that's that's a problem in itself. Well, generally, if your RTO is that short, you're going to be more concerned with more recent backups because realistically, yeah. if, you, if you've got to dive back into something like six months old to find something, you have moved beyond talk about like, you know, an instant RTO and a rollback and everything's just great again. Like if you're going back to a snapshot from a month, two months, three months ago, odds are very good you're not rolling back to that at all. What you're doing is you're cherry picking data out of it. Yeah. If you've got the room, it is absolutely great to keep a, a deeper archive depth on production so that you don't have to muck around, you know, with your backup server. But it's not uncommon at all to have the situation you're talking about where you've got, you know, bigger, slower storage on backup and you can maintain a lot more of those snapshots. So again, you might only keep one monthly on production, but you can keep 12 on the backup. And that's that's fine. It's a great way to do it. Just again, don't fall into that trap of thinking, oh, I take snapshots on the backup. You don't do that. You can't do that. And if you try, they're going to get wiped out on the next replication. Okay, my second question is more in regards to systems that manage their own backups, like XCPNG with VM snapshots and Postgres with PG backrest. 
since they have their own snapshot mechanisms, not ZFS, that have all the data sitting next to each other within the same ZFS snapshot, does it make sense to take weekly or monthly snapshots there, since the most recent ZFS snapshot includes backup data from prior weeks or months already? It absolutely does make sense. It's a belt and suspenders kind of thing. Inherently, I find that ZFS snapshots tend to be considerably more reliable than software backups like database dumps. There are advantages that database dumps have over a simple file system block level snapshot, but there are quite a few more ways that they can go wrong. So it can be very helpful to have both snapshots and those software dumps. It's not an either or kind of a thing. The one thing that I would mention is you don't necessarily need to keep a ton of those, you know, software level dumps around if they're inside the snapshotted data set or Zvol, because, you know, you can go ahead and destroy them as soon as you've snapshotted it. You don't need those hanging around in production necessarily, because now you can go back and you can cherry pick them out of the, out of the older snapshot should you need them. Yeah, and it's not so much of a problem on copy on write like ZFS, but I have definitely seen situations on other file systems where a VM snapshot has been taken mid-transaction on a DB server, and that's absolutely when I've needed to go back to those kind of transaction-level backups that the database has done. On ZFS, it's it's not been so much of an issue for me, but certainly on things like VMware and Hyper-V, I've seen it where you know, the Hyper-V VM hasn't has VSS enabled, a snapshot's been taken of a database server, it's been halfway through a transaction, and then the whole thing is hosed. And what we've done in that case is use the snapshot to restore the system state, then used our most recent transaction backup to restore back to where we were with the DB. Although it is worth mentioning that if interrupting something mid-transaction is a problem, there's a bug somewhere. Oh, yeah. Either that transaction yeah. is not actually properly encapsulated in a transaction, it's just individual queries being run, or you have like a significant bug in whatever is creating those snapshots that you wouldn't encounter with ZFS because you kind of can't. They're, they're atomic and that's all there is to it. Yeah, I think you uh, vastly underestimate the amount of really poorly written software out there that does this. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not vastly underestimating. I'm just saying that like that's your cue that you need to fix the real problem. Yeah, you need to fix the underlying problem. But if you're restoring from a backup and you suddenly find that your DB was corrupted mid-transaction, then I think that's a valid reason to keep those. But in ZFS, it's copy on write, so it shouldn't be so much of an issue. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com 25A. Okay, Tony, who is also a patron, skipped the queue with another ZFS question. He says, my question is related to ZFS and HBAs, host bus adapters. I have a Dell Perk H730 card that I've configured to run in HBA mode via Dell's configuration utility. I have eight spinning Rust drives, a total of four VDEVs with two disks per VDEV in a mirror. 
I'm running VMs on top of Proxmox in this setup and notice my performance is poor. Reading and writing appears to be very slow. I'm wondering if there is something obviously wrong I'm doing here. I was wondering if there was any benefit to putting in a standard HBA card rather than a Dell perk running in HBA mode. For what it's worth, my workload is VMs, databases, and some Active Directory servers. So I know Jim has done a ton of digging into the ZFS config on Proxmox, but one of the things that I wanted to mention with previous experience working with the Dell perk cards is some of those have the same model number and there are versions of them that are absolutely terrible and there are versions of them that are somewhat reasonable. So depending on what model of Dell perk 730 you've got and if it's the one that's on the board or if it's one that goes in a PCI slot, you may have a really balked card. Like some of those have as little as like a megabyte of cache on them with no battery backup, so they can't do write through and stuff. So it may be worth checking what model of Dell 730 you have. But either way, I'll let Jim explain the digging he's done into ZFS on Proxbox 8. Gary is certainly correct. I mean, when it comes to controllers, the Dell perk is just absolutely one of the most cursed things out there. With that said, typically, if you've got one of the perks that can be flashed to IT mode, meaning it just runs as an HPA and not as a RAID controller, usually they're fine. I mean, they're not going to be the greatest, but I seriously doubt that's the root of your performance problem. Your topology is great. Now, obviously, Rust drives aren't really ideal for you know running VMs directly in prod. But within that limitation, having four two-drive mirror VDEVs is that's the perfect topology, and that should be sufficient for decent performance, particularly given that, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, 10K SAS drives. I mean, as Rust goes, this is all fine. I doubt that a perk flashed into IT mode is your real problem. Proxmox's default configs, on the other hand, are about the worst they possibly could be for running VMs on Rust in particular. I've had friends reaching out talking about issues they've seen with Proxmox that I do not see you know, with my own servers running vanilla Ubuntu and ZFS for many, many years, but I'd never actually spun one up for myself to figure it out. Uh, I would have friends run some FIO commands on their Proxmox and then install Ubuntu on the same hardware and what I thought were the same configs and run the commands and see drastically better performance. I'm like, well, there is, problem solved. Today, I finally actually spun up Proxmox VE for myself and dug into it directly. And the major issue is that Proxmox uses ZVols, not datasets. When you set up a new VM storage on Proxmox using a ZFS backend, what it's going to create for you is a ZVol, and furthermore, a ZVol with vol block size equals 8K. So you've got teeny, teeny, tiny blocks, random access, running on Rust disks. That is not a recipe for success. Particularly, I guess, if you're running AD, you don't say what database engine you're running here, but if it's MS SQL, it's not going to run great on that. The only realistic workload I can think of that Proxmox's default configs is kind of well-suited for is very specifically Postgres. Like nothing but Postgres, we're talking about a dedicated Postgres running on a server doing nothing else because Postgres defaults to an 8K page size, which aligns nicely with the 8K vol block size and on down the road. The problem is that's like it. And the throughput isn't even good on an 8K ZVol compared to an 8K data set. It's terrible. Literally the only metric that is better on an 8K ZVol than on an 8K data set is... 4K single process write latency, not read latency, not throughput, not multiple process 4K IO, single process only. 
So unless you have that incredibly specialized workload, your configs are bad and your VMs feel bad because of them. You can force Proxmox to use raw files on data sets. Unfortunately, that involves dropping down at the command line and creating those data sets yourself and setting record size and everything else the way they ought to be, and then running command to force Proxmox to scan and find the data set you created, at which point then you can start telling it you want it to create raw files on that data set. But um, you're going to want 64K block size for the majority of workloads. Just as a general purpose block size, it's usually what you want for VMs. It's not the best at small block. It's not terrible at large stuff. Like on a dedicated file server serving, you know, mostly larger files, like JPEGs from a camera or whatever, much less really big files, you're going to want record size equals one megs. It makes an enormous difference in throughput and performance. 64K is a pretty good, like down the middle. It's not terrible at small block. It's not terrible at large block. And for the vast majority of that stuff, it's going to perform a lot better, especially on Rust. Well, we can link to your Twitter thread about this, Jim, that's got uh, all charts and everything and a full explanation of it. So check the show notes for that. But we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at ThisGeekTweets. We'll see you next week.